You are Locked On Nets, your daily Brooklyn Nets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And welcome into a late night Wednesday night edition of the Locked On Nets podcast. I'm your host and all around Nets expert, Gavin Shaw. Once again, you're listening to the Locked On Nets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Uh, no Josh on this one. Uh, it, it's weird. It seems like every time we uh, we talk about the Knicks, he either doesn't want to watch the game or says you're clearly biased. I'm not going to have that conversation with you. Leave me alone. I'm trying to sleep. I don't know. There's a different excuse uh, every time with him, and he is constantly salty about my Knicks fandom. And, and that's reasonable, considering we both host the Nets podcast together. But anyways, uh, he couldn't bear to do this one. So it is me, myself, and I on this solo Locked on Nets. Uh, Josh will be back tomorrow to record one on the, to the New York Nets lost tonight the against the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, dominate the fourth quarter, 36-23. It was 32-11 was the initial run that separated them in the third excuse me, in the fourth after the Nets had a big third quarter to close the gap, a 14-2 run for them at one point to make this one close. And, and this is something I've, I've said time and time again about the Brooklyn Nets, but I guess it's worth uh, reiterating. Uh, if you are constantly in catch-up mode, and it seems like now game after game after game they are getting behind early or having a poor stretch in the second quarter or third quarter that really takes them out of a game, if you're constantly in catch-up mode, it, it's going to inevitably catch up with you. And the Nets, they, they simply don't have the firepower, particularly off their bench. And I feel weird taking shots at the bench because, I mean, from a pure points perspective, they've been uh, one of the best in the NBA this year. But, it, but when you don't have that kind of dynamic talent off your bench, it's hard, and I, I would argue that they lack that, it, it, it's hard to have... A, a run to get back in it because usually that's your starters going on a burst or, or you could flip it around and say if your bench is making a burst and then your starters don't really have the talent to keep it going, but, but they're inevitably outmatched in one area or another. It, it's rare. Both those units are firing on all cylinders on, on the same night. And because of that, that makes it really, really tough when you come back and you, you have this stretch where you just play incredible basketball um, to keep that going indefinitely. And that, that kind of summed up the Wizards' loss to me, and that, that summed up the Knicks' loss to me. They, they, had that, they had that impressive comeback, and then they just didn't really have enough firepower once uh, Frankie Nicotine started zipping up and down the court, throwing no-look full-court passes, and KP getting to the rim, hitting threes, hitting short jumpers, and, and, and just really, uh, oh, you know who I forgot? Michael Beasley. 10 of 18, 23 and 10, double-double. That trio that maybe will never be referenced as basketball royalty again in any other context uh, really had their way with the Nets again, particularly in that fourth quarter. Um, I I wanted to take a second to remind you, I know this is probably earlier in the podcast than I've ever done, but I wanted a a short break to uh, give you an example of just how amazing the Locked On Podcast Network is and, and, and kind of the benefits of having essentially a podcast beat reporter for each and every team across the NBA 
and the NFL. I thought this past weekend was one of those great ones where you just have a million things going on uh, just in, 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 the, in the realm of athletics. Uh, the incredible weekend for NFL playoffs uh, and uh, our guy who I've done a couple crossovers with back in the days of uh, my time with the Locked On Cardinals podcast, uh, Sam Ekstrom, Vikings beat reporter, took the time with former Vikings quarterback Sage Rosenfels and broke down exactly how that miracle to Stephon Diggs went down. And then if you're if you're an NBA guy only, or even if you like both sports, uh, check out Locked on Rockets and Ben DuBois, our, our local expert in Houston, uh, breaking down what went down uh, with their big fight with the Clippers. And, and to me, that was maybe the uh, funniest slash most melodramatic story of the NBA season, though I'm sure something involved the Ball Brothers could compete with that. So I'd highly encourage you to check both of those out. Uh, really cool and uh, really excellent reporting. All right, back at it with the breakdown of Nets-Knicks. Uh, just a small note, but uh, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson early in the game threw like a no-look pass on a dime in uh, semi-transition. And his, his passing has just been on point over the last few weeks. And I think that's, that's kind of something to watch going forward. He's, he's really impressed me in that part of his game. And he, he's never really been a guy I consider just an exceptionally skilled player. So it, it's kind of awesome to see him uh, making plays like that and using his court vision in addition to the score and prowess we've talked about uh, all season. Uh, then uh, next note in the latest edition of White Guys Guarding White Guys. And this, this I noticed it's the most uh, when the Nets and the Knicks play just because uh, it's, I guess, the most natural matchup when they play. And I'm probably reading too much into it because of that. But again, it just seems like uh, whenever there's another white guy on the floor and Joe Harris is on the floor, he'll inevitably guard uh, the other white guy. And like, I don't know, you could argue like it's just because their positions lineup, but I thought it was particularly funny against the Knicks because it was just like whoever they had in between Ron Baker and uh, Dougie McBuckets, Joe Harris would tell them, and they had, had some great battles, Ron Baker having that explosive uh, drive to the rim that, that impressed me, he had that kind of uh, burst because that wasn't really ever his game, and then uh, Joe Harris uh, had one where he made like an incredible play to recover and block Doug kind of at the uh, peak of a reverse layup, but they, they called it for a foul. Anyways, uh, that's, uh, that's it for this week's edition of uh, White Guys Guarding White Guys. But when Joe Harris inevitably uh, does it again or is told to do it again, uh, we will be there uh, with, with the coverage for it that I think, uh, I think you guys demand. All right. Uh, one, one great Iron Eagle quote from this game. Uh, and it was really a great exchange. Just Kustak's uh, response was pretty funny, too. Uh, and I think it was particularly good because I think I make light on this podcast every single time Quincy AC tries to attack the rim and how it just inevitably ends in either a turnover or a badly missed dunk or, or some almost universally negative result for the Nets. There's been like two times out of maybe like 20 this year where that drive has ended up going in a positive direction for the Nets. And I think, I think only one of those was intentional. So Ian Eagle uh, generously described it as there's an air of mystery every time AC goes to the basket. Uh, perfectly put, uh, extremely generously put, as Sarah Kustak pointed out. But uh, yeah, I love Ian Eagle. And if, if anyone, I'm, I'm sure net, no Nets fan missed this, but I, I think the fact that he, he 
was calling this one like a day after uh, calling uh, Viking Saints. Just just insane. First, the range that he has and, and, and the sheer amount of talent that is and not not that he overtakes the game because you don't really want to do that as a broadcaster, but it's almost like his personality like transcends sport. Like you 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 get it watching a football game, you get it watching a basketball game. Uh, that is absolutely awesome. All right, so again, this is going to be kind of a shorter pod since I do not have uh, my my partner in crime with me, but uh, there will be a second segment where I talk about which franchise between the Knicks or Nets is better off continuing. Uh, the conversation locked on Knicks host James Marcita, and I had this off season. But first, let me tell you about draft. Fantasy sports fans, listen up. Did you know that your chances of winning on draft are 80% better than on salary cap sites? That's why draft is my favorite fantasy site. No more getting crushed by the pros. And it's not just me. More than 1 million people have already downloaded draft too. Playing a real live NBA draft right now. Be done in under five minutes and get paid out the next day. Drafts are filling every second so you can join one whenever you want. All new players get a free entry into a real money draft when you make your first deposit. But you have to use my promo code LONBA. That's right, playing a real money draft for free just by using my promo code LOCKEDONNBA. But it gets even better. Draft is so sure you'll love it that they're even offering Locked On Nets listeners a money-back guarantee up to $100. Just search Draft in your app store or go to Draft.com and come play free right now with the promo code L-O-N-B-A. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, we are going to start doing drafts with the Locked On Podcast Network so you can go ahead and follow us on that particular uh, daily fantasy site and uh, get some easy money off of me and Josh. All right, so uh, I kind of had like a, a gimmicky way to uh, break down who's better off between the Knicks and the Nets, and I'll go into all the flaws of it after because it, it, it it's kind of dumb. But I don't I don't know. In my mind, I, I just thought it'd kind of be a cool idea, and like maybe the results would be would be close, and they they weren't all that close. But uh, I was thinking, like, one way to think about, like, uh, a future of a team is just, like, who, who are your five best assets? Who, like, and, and how valuable are they relative to other guys in the NBA? Because ultimately, those are the guys that are going to define your future. And this doesn't take into account your few worst assets, which uh, also define your future in the NBA. So that's a flaw right off the bat. But anyways, I, I rank basically the Knicks and Nets best assets on a score of 10. So again, totally arbitrary, and, and as you'll see, kind of up to uh, what I like in a player and what I see in a player that maybe nobody else does and is unique to me and maybe you'd consider idiotic, but uh, how I rank them. All right, now that I've, I've totally crapped all over the idea, let's get into uh, the rankings. All right, so for the Knicks, their five best assets, I had Kristaps Porzingis, Frank Nilakina, Tim Hardaway, Enos Cantor, and Michael Beasley. All right, so KP, I let, let let's just say let's let this scale. Uh, let's just say Le, young LeBron is like. I mean, I really consider him like a fifteen out of ten. But let's just just to keep it on track, let's call him a ten out of ten. Let's call uh, Joakim Noah a one uh, on his current contract with the Knicks. Timothy Mozgov maybe a two on his current contract with the Nets. You just you kind of get a feel of how many these guys. So I'd say KP's about a nine. 
And I don't know if that totally captures his value relative to some other guys because, spoiler, I have D'Lo as like a, a seven and a half for the Nets. And I'd say like Porzingis is maybe like twice as valuable for D'Lo. Like you'd want like two guys of D'Lo's caliber in a theoretical Porzingis trade, or at least I would. Um, but then that's also like a nine, like isn't really all that close to like, like I, I, as a nine, like young KP isn't really even in the same realm of as valuable as a young LeBron is. So it's, it's kind of a sliding scale. Anyways, Porzingis, I think he's, even though he's gone cold after an extremely hot start where I would have ranked him as one of the maybe five best assets in the whole NBA. Now I'd still have him as like a top 10 to 15 asset because again, Guys who are seven foot three with flawless shooting touch and pretty startling athletic ability don't really grow on trees. He and he continues to show off his improved defensive instincts this year. I, I think he's a pretty significant reason why the Knicks haven't been just a garbage fire on the defensive end. When when preseason, I think a lot of people, including myself, had them as potentially one of the worst defenses in NBA history. Um, yeah, his versatility, his aura on skill set. And I think he'd be closer to like a 9.5, but I, I, I knock him down a little bit uh, because of his seeming fragility and the fact that taking on this star role, and again, I, I don't think it's totally unusual for someone kind of doing it at that volume for the first time, but he, he seemed to worn down as the season gone, has gone on. Uh, Frank Nilakina, uh, I put as a 6, which when you hear the rankings of the Nets guys, seems way too high for a dude averaging three and a half points a game and shooting the ball exceptionally poorly. I think 35, 31, 70 splits right now. But uh, here, I'll, I'll make the case for Frank. I think anyone who who watched him against the Nets, um, and again, I'm like, I may be a little bit over-influenced by one game, even despite my acclaimed, acclaimed Knicks fandom because uh, of my Nets schedule. I haven't really seen the Knicks all that much this year. Maybe only watched like 15 of like their 40 games. But uh, Frank, when I've seen him, he just has like a constant swagger to his game. And I, I don't know. My, my Knicks loving heart, like every every time I watch him on like, e, like even like possession to possession, like I get excited and you kind of, there's like an air of anything can happen. And that, that's like a sensation I get around like all special passers. And I, I, I know, I know like putting again, an 18 year old averaging three assists a game in the special passer category feels like a leap. But, but you see some of the ones he throws and he makes really advanced reads for his age. And he can just put it on a dime, and, and he's particularly good in transition. Like, if, if someone's open down court, and this kind of reminds me of Lonzo Ball on his best nights, he, he's going to find them, and he's going to find them in a way that allows them to just go up and finish immediately. So I think that's special. I think his abilities on the defensive end are extraordinary for someone as young as he is, and I, I think the shot is is going to get a lot better. Like, his form isn't broken by any means. Like, you look at someone like Josh Jackson on the Suns, who has – Similar percentages, like it's maybe like a little bit better from two, but he, that that guy's shot is broken. Frank's, I I really don't think it is. It looks really good when it goes in. He's smooth going up and down. I, I'd expect a big leap from him when things slow down next year. That's why I have him as a six. And like in my mind, I'm actually maybe even underrating him a little bit. Like I like I kind of want to have him as like a six or a seven. But then I look at some of the box scores from games I don't watch where he's just horrible. Like even tonight against the Grizzlies, like over six, over four, three. And that's like the norm more so than the exception. So until he starts shooting it better, hard to put him higher than that. But uh, that was kind of my reasoning there. All right. Spent way too much time on Frank Nilakina for a Nets podcast. Tim Hardaway at his five. Uh, he's been way better than I thought he would be this year. I, I thought he was a mediocre player making $75 million a year. And it turns out he's closer to a 
above average player making uh not 75 million a year that would be insane 75 million over four years about 18 19 a year uh Enos Cantor form again nice player good even I would say especially in this next system next to KP but that contract is terrible his defense still leaves a lot to be desired that's where I had it uh Michael Beasley and this is a testament to uh, just how much the Knicks need to stockpile some more talent that I have the guy who was out of the NBA last year as their fifth best asset. But he's been just such an efficient scorer um, after the first 20, I, sh- I should say maybe over the last 20 or so games of the year. And, and his efficiency combined with his rebounding and uh, still being playing a little selfishly, but I'd say kind of getting his in the context of the offense. All that adds up. You still see the talent that made him the number two pick in the draft, and he's such a good fit on this Knicks team, and obviously not making a whole lot of money right now, so that's where I had him. So the Knicks score top five guys adds up to 28. Uh, Nets, I had uh, D'Angelo Russell, I already mentioned, as a seven and a half. And again, sliding scale, I think it makes more sense to have him there. 21 years old, uh, really, really exceptional statistically in the uh, 12 games he played, and it's really amazing he's only played 12 games this year. But uh, shooting much better from the field than he has at any point in his life, 46%, only 30% from three. But again, um, over a much larger sample size through his first two years, 143 games, he shot 35% from three-point range, which is pretty good. And theoretically, that goes up a little down the road. Could be really, really good for a high-volume shooter. Um, So 21 points, six assists, five rebounds. This year's the focal point of the Nets offense. So, so the statistically, like none of that is a problem. And like eye test wise, offensively, he's he's going to be a brilliant offensive player down the road. Like I really don't have a lot of doubts about that. Like his court vision combined with his start and stop game and how advanced he already is at manipulating defenders, and how good he is in the pick and roll. And I think he's going to be a lot better when he comes back to play, getting to play with Julio Okafor and improved Jared Allen and Tyler Zeller instead of uh, the corpse of uh, Timofey Mozgov. Then that is all going to do uh, wonders for him. But defensively, uh, the intangible stuff uh, leave left a lot to be desired. So I kind of marked him down from someone who purely based on age and offensive ability would be an eight or even close to an eight and a half uh, down to a seven and a half. Again, that could shift pretty dramatically based on what he does over the final uh, 35 to 40 games of the Nets season. Uh, here's the surprise and where I'm probably showing my personal preference in players Karis LeVert, a seven and a half. I think most people, or maybe maybe I'm wrong about this, and like and like tweet at us and and tell me if I'm correct in this perception or not. But I feel like a lot of people would call Dinwiddie and maybe even Rondé better assets than Karis. But I've I've made no bones about how how much I think of Karis LeVert and how talented he is, and that like he has if if not I I don't know I'm I'm starting to Josh Josh would shoot me down, so I'll say it when he's not on the podcast. I'm I'm starting to think like borderline like he makes an all-star team or two potential in his career like he's he's that good and like we we get I get how competitive that is like I feel like the baseline for those types of guys is Goran Dragic who I think at his peak was was a great NBA player maybe even the top 15 guy in the league but but Karis you you see this improved shooting touch you see he, the kind of burgeoning ability to manipulate defenses and just the raw speed from him the ability to get by any guy at any time to be totally dominant in the open court, and like I get that the shooting has fallen off a little bit over the last few games, but I'm I'm just so that that combination of of instincts, smarts, shooting, speed, size, 
it, it those packages you don't you don't get them a whole lot in guys outside the lottery and I think again the Nets got a real gem in him so that, that's kind of where I ranked him Spencer Dinwiddie uh, seven I would have probably had him higher a week or two ago but again the shooting uh, brings him down but uh, really really good floor general you know it's probably like a little bit high just given how deep the position of point guard is in the NBA but I, I just think he's he's the quintessential he's just a winning player he helps your he helps your team in just about any context so. That's why he's there. Rondé, 6.5, could, uh, could probably a little lower. Probably should be more like a 6, but uh, I, I just I just like the two-way game. He has to get his defense back uh, to his previous year's level to really earn that. And then Jared Allen, a 6. You could make a pretty good case for him being a 6.5, but I think just because, like, I, I don't know. I don't really ever see him having, like, a super advanced offensive game, but I think he's, like, the best possible version of that rim runner out of his defense keeps kind of going on the trajectory like I see it going and he's kind of a poor man's Rudy Gobert down the road he could he could way exceed that I, I just think uh where where maybe the rest of the league evaluates him he might be there uh, so the Nets at a 34.5 the Knicks at a 28 so just based off their five best guys and that's the better future again that doesn't evaluate the worst contracts which I'd argue like the Knicks might even be worse than the Nets despite uh that Mozgov uh albatross because the Knicks can Match it shot for shot with Joakim Noah. Hardaway, even though he's good, uh, they, I don't think that contract's great. And then Cantor, even though he's good, I also think it's way too much money for him. Um, flaws with that. Doesn't fully capture KP's value. Doesn't capture the fact that I think the Nets have way more competent management. And even though I, I love Jeff Hornacek to my dying days, I, I think uh, I think as an in-game coach, he's at least Atkinson's equal. And like you could argue like system-wise. He's pretty similar to Atkinson. I think the Nets player development is better than the Knicks, even though um, with, with what they've been getting out of Beasley this year and like Cantor and McDermott and Baker, you can make a case that the Knicks are swinging up in that department. I put the Nets pretty clearly ahead of them. Uh, then the fact that the Knicks have a pick this year uh, is probably a boost to them. Uh, I don't know. So I guess I, I come away oh, maybe a little bit more torn on this than I did over the summer when I made uh, a fairly solid case for the Nets, I think, being in a better situation. You can argue like the Knicks having Porzingis trumps all, and I, I'd probably make the counterpoint that uh, if, if if he had played the way he played over the first 10 games of the year throughout the entirety of the season, that would be true, but he hasn't been able to maintain that. So right now I'd call it pretty close to a draw, and I'd give a slight edge to the Nets just based on proven management. But uh, we're going to have to see going forward how that pans out. Anyways, that is it for this edition of the Locked on Nets podcast. Really appreciate you going in. I went way longer than I thought. That's why I'm losing my voice. Uh, I will be back tomorrow with the one, the only Josh Bass to break down the Spurs game. Uh, until then, have a great day. Tomorrow, peace out.